Amen. If you would, please turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 2 to 9 this morning. Philippians 4.2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you may help us to set our minds upon your word. Help us to set our minds upon Christ, who is the example of what is honorable, of what is excellent, of what is pure, of what is true, of what is lovely, of what is worthy of praise, of what is commendable. Please help us to remove any distractions that may be in our minds and in our hearts. We pray that you may speak to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've all, or at least most of you, I think, have heard a statement that goes along the lines of, uh, fake it until you make it. There was a popular TED Talk given several years ago, I think with, I think over a million views, by a professor at an Ivy League school, where she kind of takes this, this statement, this mantra, whatever you might call it, and kind of changes it and says, well, you... you you fake it until you become it. And she kind of talks about her own personal example uh, and an example of one of her students. And the idea behind the tech talk, essentially, is that, for example, in the context where you might feel like you don't belong, like say in an Ivy League school, and you feel like everybody else is more intelligent than you are when everybody else is kind of in a different league, a different playing field, and you feel like you don't quite fit in, the tendency or the the temptation might be to kind of leave it all behind and find someplace much more comfortable where you feel like you fit in. But she would say that, no, you you sit there, you you engage, you do whatever you should do until you actually become that what you, you become essentially what you have been faking this whole time. And, And... whether it's true or not, I mean, it's, I'll leave to kind of researchers and experts to kind of figure out. It's really motivating and really inspiring. 
But what I do know, and I think maybe some of you might resonate with this, is that pretending to be something or someone you're not can be really, really frustrating and really exhausting. In the passage, towards the end of the passage, we have a command which is essentially to imitate. And I think imitation is a very effective means of becoming perhaps something different or someone different. And as Christians, as those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who experience the, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, right, we don't intend to become something we're not, but in fact, the scriptures actually exhort us and command us to be what you already are in Christ. And so, there are actually several commands here in the passage that I think are summarized in this one exhortation to imitate. And the great hope for the Christian life is that while we give our lives to following Jesus Christ, while we give ourselves to imitation, that ultimately we become, we do become what we intend to imitate in a much greater degree and manner than we already are through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, before we get to this particular exhortation of, uh, to imitate, there's a list of other applications in the passage. There are several, at least a couple of different concerns in the passage that we need to get through before we get to this last section that deals with imitation. So the first concern in the passage is with regards to living life together. The passage begins with a naming of a couple different individuals, Iodia and Syntyche. There's a mention of other, a couple of others as well. There's a true companion. There's also another person by the name of Clement. We don't exactly know who Clement is, other than that it's a typical uh, common Roman male name. True companion, we really don't have any idea who that is. But there's other individuals, Syntyche and Yodia, two women who are unfortunately the recipients of a public rebuke. We don't exactly know the nature of their disagreement, but it seems to be, it seems to be the case that they were somehow pretty influential in the life of the church. Maybe they were patrons of a couple of different house churches, but the fact that they are actually named, which is pretty uncommon in the New Testament letters, Paul doesn't really, when he rebukes somebody, he doesn't really do so by name, but in this case, he names them, which means that their disagreement was, might have been pretty grievous. But he names them, and he rebukes them, and he encourages them, encourages them to pursue unity. In fact, he actually calls this true companion, whoever it is, might be the church collectively, but he might be calling the church to help these two women to agree in the Lord, to pursue unity. A command for them to reconcile, right? Unity is incredibly important. I won't spend too much time talking about unity because we've talked about it before. We've gone through Philippians chapter 1, but unity is essential for the life of the church because disunity destroys the witness of the church. Disunity prevents the proclamation of the gospel through the church. And so unity is incredibly important to the life of the church. Now, lest we think too ill of these two women in the church, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul actually goes on to tell us that these two women labored side by side with him in the gospel. 
together with this other individual who is Clement. And that's also, that's also pretty telling. Yeah, they might have, they have had some personal disagreements, some personal sins, such as we all have personal sins that we have to struggle with and sometimes need to be rebuked for those personal sins. With regards to these two women, they contended for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The idea here is that not only did they share in the ministry of the Apostle Paul in proclaiming the gospel and sharing the gospel, they also took the brunt of sharing the gospel. They suffered on the cost of the gospel with the Apostle Paul. And so they at least show that they had a resilience, a fortitude, an unwaveringness that comes with the gospel or that's required for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for that alone, their example is worthy of imitation. So there's a command for them to pursue unity, which is also a, a command for us to pursue unity. Again, we've talked at length about that before, but I want to continue with the rest of the passage because we have another command in the passage with regards to reasonableness. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. But wait, by the way, before that, there's a command to rejoice in the Lord, which I think is not really connected to anything else that prior to or after but I think this is just the, 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 the joy that one experiences in his heart, that he cannot help but say rejoice in the Lord. Regardless of the disunity that is happening in the church, regardless of your suffering, regardless of what you might be personally experiencing in your life, there is always reason to rejoice in the Lord. The Puritan Matthew Henry says that there is enough in God to furnish us with matter of joy in the worst circumstances on earth. We experience difficult circumstances in life, but there's never any reason to not rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord Jesus, there's an endless feast for rejoicing. There's the command to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Then there's a command to reasonableness. Now, what is exactly, what does reasonableness mean? What does the author mean by letting your reasonableness be known to everyone? The idea here is that not insisting in one's own personal rights. The idea is not to insist upon what, it, what you are entitled to, no matter if you're, even if it is something you are certainly entitled to. To not insist on your own rights. The idea is, and the emphasis here is on relationships, right? The first commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love our neighbor as ourself. So even though you might be entitled to something, maybe you have the right of ownership towards something, don't let that get in the way of personal relationships. One kind of example is say you go out with a friend. You grab a bite to eat and you grab a pizza. There's five slices. You each have two. There's one slice left. Now, you might have been the one who paid for the pizza. That other person, your friend, didn't pay anything for it. So you might say, I'm entitled to the last slice. I paid for it. We might all agree, yeah, you definitely deserve it because you paid for it. But reasonableness is not insisting upon your own rights and is saying, instead offering the last slice to the other person. 
kind of a small example, but it's kind of the idea here where we're not insisting on our own rights in a way that it impedes personal relationships. It's going the extra mile. It's really a kind of a rehearse, a rehearsal of something that Paul has already said in the letter, looking to the interests of others, counting others more significant than yourself. That even when you are entitled to something, that relationships matter much more. And the passage also says that the Lord is at hand. Now, depending on the translation you have, after that sentence, there might be a semicolon or there might be a period. I think there should be a period. I think that particular sentence, the Lord is at hand, is dealing with what came before. And so how does that come to bear on our reasonableness? When we understand the reality of Jesus Christ, when we understand and know and believe that Jesus Christ will one day return, it allows us and should even compel us to hold on to our things more loosely. Because Jesus is the great rewarder. Jesus comes not as the one who will take us to himself, but he is the one who will bestow his blessings upon all those who wait for him, upon all those who trust in him, upon all those who continue to follow him through thick and thin, through all the rest of their lives. That he is the one who is going to reward you at the very end. When you know that, when you believe in that, it allows you to become much more reasonable. It allows you It compels you to hold on to those things even if they are given to you by the Lord with an open hand because you know that you have something better coming to you. So then, let us show by our lives this reasonableness. He says that, to let it be known everywhere. In other words, let the church of the Lord Jesus be known by its reasonableness, by its insistence, its centrality on relationships and loving others instead of insisting in our own way. So then there's a concern in the passage for our lives and our living our lives together as God's people. Pursuing unity, showing a reasonableness, And then there's also a concern with regards to prayer, right? Praying for all things is kind of this next section. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Anxiety is defined as a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Right, examples abound. Right? You could be anxious about a test, an exam, or an upcoming interview. You could be anxious about a difficult conversation you need to have with somebody. You could be anxious just about change. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about the things that you can be anxious about. Now, anxiety, I think, is our realization that we are not God. Anxiety is our coming to grips with our mortality, our coming to realize that we are finite, that we are not God, that we don't have all the knowledge, that we don't have all the understanding, that we don't have all the right answers. And when we realize that, we can become anxious and we can become fearful. Right? We don't always have the power to change our circumstances to relieve our anxiety. 
much less the power to change somebody's mind. We don't always know the right thing to say. We don't always have the right answers. We don't always have the power to take things differently. We don't have all the knowledge, all the wisdom to know exactly what to do in a given moment. And that sometimes leads us to be anxious, to be filled with worry. Right? We've all experienced anxiety. We all know what it's like. Are you anxious today? Is there anything you might be anxious about? How long have you been anxious about this thing that has been gnawing at you? Some of you might wonder if anxiety is a sin. The passage tells us to be anxious about nothing. Jesus tells us in the Gospels to not worry about tomorrow. It might naturally lead somebody to conclude that anxious or worry is sin. Now, I don't think being anxious or to be worried is a sin in itself. I mean, to some degree, we cannot help but be anxious. We cannot help at times but to be worried about something. But anxiety can become sin. Anxiety can become sin when anxiety impedes you from loving others. Because anxiety bleeds into every area of our lives, doesn't it? When we are anxious about about something, sometimes we get impatient with people. Sometimes we're quick to get angry. Anxiety has a tendency to make us insular, focused on ourselves, centered on ourselves, when we, and then we never really consider others. We can't fulfill the commands in Philippians to look to the interests of others when we are so focused on our own personal anxiety. We get short-tempered. We get frustrated with people at times. In that sense, when anxiety becomes that, then it does become a sin. Anxiety can also turn into sin when it leads us to no longer trust in God. When we take this situation or this circumstance or this difficult conversation that we have to have and let that and allow that to become bigger than God, when we allow that to, to, to lead us in a direction where we say to ourselves that God does not care, that God does not love, that God doesn't, it, God doesn't care about this situation. In that sense, right, you are no longer trusting in the Lord. That situation has become much bigger than God. Right, and, if, and if anxiety ever becomes that, right, then we need to acknowledge that. We need to confess that to ourselves and we need to repent of that kind of anxiety. Sometimes we just need to admit that we're anxious. Sometimes we try to avoid the anxiety. We try not to think about it. But if we avoid anxiety or thinking about the anxiety that we have or even admitting that we are anxious, we lose out in a promise that is given to us in the Scriptures. Where the command is to, be not, to not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And here is the promise. 
that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right, you're not going to know right, all the answers. You're not going to have all the power to change a circumstance or situation or to know how to properly engage somebody in a difficult conversation. You won't know everything, but you don't need to know everything. You don't have to, know all the, have, to have all the power. You don't have to have all the knowledge and wisdom. You just need to know the right person. You just need to know the one who does have it all, and that is the Lord. The relief to our anxiety comes when we hand all our anxieties upon the Lord Jesus. We are casting our cares upon Him. The Scriptures, specifically in the New Testament, often tell us that right, Christians experience trials, and that these trials are for the purpose at times of our testing, for our, our growing and maturing of our, of our faith. Anxiety oftentimes is one of those tests, is one of those trials. Right? Are you going to trust in God in that moment of anxiety? Are you going to confide in the Lord? Are you going to cast that anxiety upon the Lord Jesus or are you going to take matters into your own hands? And the promise is that if we pray and entrust these things to the Lord, then the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that the answer to the prayer is not that God will give you exactly what you want, that God is not going to change the circumstance for you, that God is not going to give you all the answers that you need or all the wisdom that you need. He might, but that's not the promise in the Scripture. The promise is that He will give you peace. A peace that surpasses all logic, all rationality, a peace that surpasses all comprehension will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It functions as a hedge of protection around your life. It is a peace that comes from trusting in the Lord. Isaiah 26.3 speaks to this peace. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. 1 Peter 5.6 says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The author seems to be saying that part of what humility, humility looks like is casting your anxieties upon the Lord. And it is an act of humility, right? because the alternative is to take matters into our own hands, to not trust in God but it takes great humility to cast those things upon the Lord. Under the mighty hand of God, the passage says. And you do this, why? Because God cares for you. John Calvin says that here we have a most beautiful sentiment from which we learn in the first place that ignorance of the providence of God is the cause of all impatience, and that is the reason why we are so quickly on trivial accounts thrown into confusion and often, too, become disheartened because we do not recognize the fact that the Lord cares for us. In other words, right, when we realize that we don't understand 
when we don't comprehend the providence of God, when we lose sight that God is providential, that God has all things in his hands, including your own life and the circumstances that are giving you anxiety in your life, when we lose sight of that truth, we are thrown into confusion, we're thrown into anxiety, we're thrown into distress. And we forget the fact that the Lord cares for us. Calvin continues, and he says, on the other hand, we learn that this is the only remedy for tranquilizing our minds. When we repose unreservedly in his providential care, as knowing that we are not exposed either to the rashness of fortune or to the caprice of the wicked, but are under the regulation of God's fatherly care. The antidote to our anxiety comes when we trust upon the Lord, when we remember that he is providential, when we remember that he is a father who cares for us, when we come to realize and remember that what is happening to us isn't by chance, that isn't even necessarily dictated or determined by perhaps the evil intentions of another person. But we experience the peace of God when we realize that God cares for us and that God is providential over whatever circumstances has presented itself in your life and given you anxiety. The command is to be anxious for nothing but pray for everything. Pray, plead, and also express gratitude to the Lord. Right, so there's this concern for our living our life together, pursuing unity, letting our reasonableness be known, a concern for our prayer life as well, that we ought to pray for everything. And then lastly, there's a concern with our thinking and our doing. It says, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, whatever is excellent, anything worthy of praise, you and I are to think on these things. To think about these Christian virtues. Now surely an unbeliever or a secular person can pursue these virtues, and that might be that is fine as well, and that is good. But the scriptures teach us that at the end of the day it will account it will, it will mean nothing. Because what matters most is faith in Christ. Right? And as believers, we pursue these virtues, we think about these virtues differently. We don't pursue them just to be a good person, but we pursue them because our lives have been transformed to the gospel of Jesus Christ by our faith in Jesus. So we think about these different, these different virtues. We think about truth. And we let our actions be determined by what we think about. So when we think about truth, the aim is that we would live in a manner that is truthful, that we are truthful in every area of our lives, with regards to honorable, that we live a life that is worthy of imitation. When it comes to just, that we live our lives in a manner that shows a righteousness, that we live righteousness, righteously, pure, that we live a life, that we think about the life of innocence and blamelessness, and that we live a life of, of blamelessness and innocence. Whatever is lovely, that we live and think and live in such a way that elicits admiration 
and affection, commendable, that we think about and live a life that is of good repute and, a, and, a, and have a commendable character, excellence, that our life displays a moral excellence worthy of being honored, not perfection, right, because that's impossible. You don't have to be perfect to live a morally excellent life. Praiseworthy. Are you, is your mind given to thinking about those things that are praiseworthy? And does your, life show a li- does your life show the kind of life that should be praised by men? You see, you're shaped by what you think about. What you think about determines your action. What you think about determines how you live your life. And so there's a, a command here, I think, for a co- to make a cognitive decision to think about these things and to live your life in a manner that displays these things. There's a research study conducted by Stanford University. This was several years ago. And they tried to see this relationship between the mind and one's actions. And so what they did to try to, they tried to test a hypothesis, and they did it in the context of the, of, the, of the university cafeteria, and to try to see, can we get more students to eat more vegetables? And so what they did was they took a look at the menu, they saw the descriptions of the different items on the menu, just specifically vegetables, and they tried to add some adjectives. You might say like, something like sizzling green beans or decadent green beans, something like that. Now, for me personally, no matter what adjectives you use with green beans, I'm not going to eat them. But they tried to change the wording in order, to, in order that it would read something much more flavorable, something much more appetizing than just saying green beans. And so they did that. Now, the, now the, the dish itself did not change. It was prepared the same way. Nothing changed about its preparation. And what they found was that actually more, more students ate vegetables, all because they changed the wording on the menu. And you see, because, it's because they saw the menu, they read the description, and they said they read something that actually sounded appetizing to them in their minds. Wow, this sounds really good. This sounds really appetizing. I'm going to try it. And they tried it, and they ate it. All that to say is that there is this relationship between what you think and what you do. And so for us as Christians, it is important to know what exactly have we been thinking a lot about lately. And then think about how is our life shaped by what we've been thinking about. If you're thinking a lot about finances, perhaps, then that's going to determine how you live your life, how you spend your free time. Maybe you're looking at reading a lot of finance articles. Maybe you're reading a lot of finance uh, documents, thinking about budgeting. Maybe you're looking for ways to make more money, perhaps. If you're looking or if you're thinking a lot about self-pleasure and self-gratification, especially if it's through a sinful means, well then, your actions will be determined by what you think about. If you're thinking a lot about whatever that is, it's causing you anxiety and distress, your interactions with people will look a little bit differently. Right? You might be 
in a conversation, but not really mentally in a conversation because all you can think about is that situation. You won't think about other people as much as you should. See, your reality is shaped by your thoughts. And so there's a command here to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is of excellence, whatever is worthy of praise. Because our actions matter, our lives matter. And if we want to live a virtuous life according to the Scriptures, then we have to make sure that our minds are devoted to thinking about those things. So thinking about the right things leads us to putting into action the right things. And then this leads us to another wonderful promise in the Scriptures. Right, it says, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the Apostle Paul, pointing to himself as someone whose life is worthy of imitation, what you have seen and heard and learned and received in me, practice these things. He is essentially showing himself as one who is, whose thoughts are giving to thinking about these things. He points to his own life as a life worthy of imitation. We don't try to fake it, to try to become like the Apostle Paul. No, we try to imitate the Apostle Paul. There's a difference between faking and imitating. What you have seen in my life, what you have heard from my own lips, what you have been taught by me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Why does Paul call us to imitate him? One answer I find is in Philippians 1.20, where it says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But this is, these are the words of a man who was possessed by Christ. His life is subsumed in Christ. His life is all devoted to Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20, he also says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, he, Paul says, it's no longer I who live. There is no Paul. There's only Christ. And the one whose life is totally devoted to Jesus Christ it's no longer you. It is Christ living in you. There's no longer an ademi. There is just Christ. There's no longer just you. There is just Christ living in you. Your life is subsumed in Christ. Your life is united to Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. Your life is possessed by Christ. And anybody whose life is possessed by Christ and totally devoted to Christ is the kind of life that is worthy of imitation. It's the kind of life that we ought to look to imitate. So his life is reflected. It's reflecting the work of Christ, reflecting the love of Christ, everything about Christ. And so that's the kind of life we seek to imitate. It's not a mechanical process. It's not monkey see, monkey do. We're not trying to copy somebody, not in that kind of sense. 
Someone had once said that imitation is imaginatively entering into the world of the one that is imitated. Here's the difference, right, between faking and imitating, between copying and imitating. Some of you might remember an old commercial, Gatorade commercial, with Michael Jordan. It says, like, be like Mike. Like Mike, I want to be like Mike. And it has all these kids who right, try to shoot the ball and dunk, and some people humorously try to perform all these feats that, like, Michael Jordan did. But... Right, if, if imitation is entering imaginatively into someone's world, then imitation is much more than just copying somebody. Right, if you want to paint, say, like Leonardo da Vinci, you've got to do more than just look at his paintings and paint them exactly as they're painted. But no, you actually, if you want to imitate Michael Jordan or, or anybody else, you actually have to enter into the world. Right, you've got to adopt Michael Jordan's zeal for the game, his competitiveness. To imitate somebody in the truest sense of the world is entering into their worldview. It requires that you know certain things about the person. And for us as Christians, we're called to imitate the Apostle Paul who's ultimately imitating the life of Christ. And to imitate Christ, well, we have to know Christ. We have to enter into his world. We have to know his mind, and we don't have to figure out what that's like because it's written for us in the scriptures. We have four different accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, and we have many other letters that tell us exactly what, how to apply the life of Christ. Discipleship is not only a transfer of knowledge, though that is important, and it is that, but it's much more than that. Discipleship is imitation. It is learning to imitate the life of another person. Right? So for us, like as we are disciples of Jesus Christ, we are looking to imitate the life of Jesus Christ. It's essentially what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And when we imitate and when we practice, there's a promise that the God of peace will be with you, right? The first promise was that if you pray for all things and be anxious about nothing, casting all your anxieties upon the Lord, then God's peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the second promise related to that is that if we imitate these things, if we imitate these virtues, if we imitate the life of Christ, then we have this promise, we have this assurance that God himself will be with us that we never need to wonder no matter what circumstance, no matter what situation, no matter what tragedy we are experiencing, that as long as we continue to walk in the way of the Lord, if we continue to imitate his life, we can rest assured that God has not left us, that God continues to remain with us, that we have his abiding presence at all times. It gives us his measure of assurance when we know that we are imitating the life of Christ, then we can rest assured that God is still with us, even when our present circumstances might give the impression or might try to communicate that God has left us. We know, according to the Scriptures, we know according to our own lives, if we continue to imitate the life of Christ, that Christ has actually not left us.
There's a wonderful hymn that fits well with this passage. It says, trust and obey. Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The Christian life is a life of imitation. But the only way that we can properly imitate is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any effort to imitate Christ apart from faith in Christ is just a self-righteous effort that will only lead to the judgment of God. But when we seek to imitate the life of Jesus Christ because we have firmly believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we can properly rightly imitated the life of Christ. And the Scriptures promises us that we will one day become like the one we imitate. That one day we will behold Him, that we will see Him face to face, and that we will become like He is. That we will be perfected, and that we will be glorified. And that is what we have to look forward to. That is why we pray for all things, casting our anxieties upon the Lord. That is why we are eager to maintain unity. That is why we are eager to let our reasonableness be known to all men. That is why we seek to imitate the life of Jesus Christ, so that one day we may become as he is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have not only called us to live a virtuous life, but you have given us in the scriptures many examples of what that's like. We see it in your own life written for us in the gospels. We see this kind of life in the life of the apostle Paul and the other apostles. We see this kind of life and the many others who came before you stepped into the world, Jesus. Lord, and we, we remember, right, that we are sinners, that we are not perfect and we cannot be perfect, but help us regardless of our sins, to continue to imitate you. Help us, Lord, to know intimately your thoughts, to know your ways, to know your affections, so that we may have the same thoughts, so that we may have the same affections, so that we may have the same love, so that we may even have the same personality, the same characteristics that you displayed in your days on earth. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be like you, and that that would be our greatest desire. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.